Good morning, Redeemer Church. Did you notice in those last couple of verses who this text is written to? So I'm writing to you little children. Are there any children out here? Anyone want to admit to that? There's a few. Trey, thank you. Are there, he said, I'm writing to you fathers. Any fathers or mothers? It's about age, more than gender, a few of you. Okay, how about, he says, I'm writing to you young men. Any young men or young women? The uh, regen, the jump start, anyone out there in that category? Okay, so this text is for everybody, right? Is there anyone out there who should be like playing on their phone and being like, oh, I'm not in one of these age categories? No, 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 it's for all of us, all right? All right, so let's study it and read it with that in mind. Let me pray for us as we start. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given this text to us. Father, we pray for all of us to have ears that are ready to hear, ready to listen to what you have to say to us. Give us minds that are attentive and ready to receive your message. Give us hearts that are soft and that are teachable and that are ready to hear and see and to respond. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold what you have to say to us from your word. Today we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you the story this morning, and it's going to be a true story. The story about a boy who loves sports. Anyone here like sports? A few of us. Well, the particular sport this young man liked was baseball. I don't know how many baseball fans there are. It may be a lesser number. Uh, but this young man grew up in Japan. He was, has an Iranian father and a Japanese mother, and so grew up in Japan. But he really loved baseball, and he had a dream. This young man's dream was to play in the best baseball league in the world, which is Major League Baseball in the United States. He wanted to play in the biggest baseball tournament in the world, the World Series, and he wanted to be the champion of the world by winning that baseball tournament. A lot of young men have dreams like that, but this one actually seemed able to achieve it. He quickly became, as he worked hard and he was naturally talented, he became the best baseball pitcher in all of Japan. He played Japanese professional baseball and he could do things that nobody else could do. He could throw the ball harder than anybody else. He could make the ball spin in these crazy ways so it could go this way or it could go that way and just confuse all of the hitters. And so he became very, very successful. He won championships and he won awards in Japan, but he said, I wanna go on, I wanna go to the best league, I wanna go to the US. So in 2012, Hugh Darvish, because that is his name, came to the US to play for the Texas Rangers. Uh, he played really well. He impressed everybody. He struck out batters at a rate faster than any batter or any pitcher in the history of baseball. Uh, but the team wasn't very good. He had some injuries. And so for years went by and he wasn't really able to achieve his dream. But then this year, 2017, the opportunity came because he got traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers. At the time of that trade, LA was already the best team in baseball. They thought, now we're already the best team. We're going to add one of the very best pitchers in the world. Surely now we'll be unstoppable. And they looked to be unstoppable after the trade. Hugh Darvish was pitching well. He was winning games. The team was winning. They got into the postseason tournament. They blew past several opponents, and they made it to the World Series. Now, the World Series is a, is, has two teams in it, and they play seven games against each other. Whichever team wins four games first uh, is the champion. So they played the first six games. One team won three. The other team won three, and they were all tied up. It came down to one game. Hugh Darvish was the pitcher for that game. All his life he'd prepared for this. 
All his life, he waited for this. All of his achievements were leading up to this one moment. He had the opportunity, if he could just win one more game, he would be the champion of the world. He would achieve his dream. This game took place on November 1st, just a few weeks ago. And it started off, and he forgot how to pitch. He was throwing balls all over the place. They weren't going anywhere near where he wanted them to go. And when they did go in the right place, batters were hitting them. They were hitting them out of the ballpark. Runs were being scored all over the place. It was the worst game he ever pitched in his whole life. He gave up so many runs, his team didn't even have a chance. They lost that game by a wide margin. And you, Darvish, he came so close to his dream but he wasn't able to achieve it. It's a tragic story. It's a tragic story. I'm gonna tell you another story, even a more tragic story. There once was a young woman who grew up going to church. This is also a true story. If you knew her, you would like her. She's a good person. She's not involved in anything uh, unseemly or inappropriate. You would enjoy her company. She talks a lot about God, about knowing God, about having a relationship with God. She attends a small group. But here's the tragedy. The tragedy is, all that's a lie. It's not true. In fact, she doesn't actually have a relationship with God. When she says she does, She's telling a lie. She's actually a friend of the devil. She's actually, though she's so close to being on the road to eternal life, she's headed for hell. She's headed for eternal punishment apart from God. She is lost. She is stumbling around in darkness. It's a tragic story. And I think she might be here this morning. I think she or he might even be you. Our passage today says that some of you As it stands today, some of you are not going to heaven. Some of you are just like the girl I was just talking about. You don't necessarily follow any other religion. You identify yourself as a Christian. Maybe you've gone to church all your life. Maybe you're active and involved, but some of you in that category don't know Christ and are on your way to eternal punishment. You're here, you're really close, but you might yet be lost. This could not be any more serious. This is a serious passage, a somber passage for all of us. On the other hand, for many of you, there's an incredible amount of hope in this passage. There's an incredible amount of joy and excitement in this passage for those who know Jesus. So you might go out with hope. You might go out with fear. But none of you need to go out of here today with uncertainty. None of you need to leave here today wondering Am I really a follower of Jesus or not? Am I really deceived about my life or not? Am I going to heaven or not? You don't need to be confused. As you turn to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, know that John is writing to answer those kinds of questions. John is writing so that you can know that you have eternal life. And to help us see that, to help us to know what he wants us to know, this morning I want to ask you three questions from 1 John 1 and 2. These are three questions that I want you to ask in your own heart. I want you to ask yourself as you're hearing the message. And I want you to reflect on and to chew on and to digest as you go out from here today into your life. Question number one. Are you ignoring your sin? Are you ignoring your sin? Verse 6 says this, chapter 1-6, he says, 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, in our passage, John is describing two kinds of person, two categories of person. He's going to go back and forth between them, contrasting them and comparing them as we go through this text. One that we are going to meet in the next verse, one is a genuine Christian, a true believer, someone who is going to heaven. But the person in this verse, in verse 6, they're a professing Christian. They say that they have fellowship with him. But it says in the verse, they're walking in darkness. They're living in a state of sin. The person's making the claim. They say, I can have both. I can have both at the same time, can't I? I can, I can be a Christian, and I can still be in all this darkness and all this sin. And John says, no, that's a lie. Our sermon title today is, Can I Love Jesus and Sin? And this verse answers, No. No, you can't. If you're going to ignore your sin, if you're going to act like your sin is not a big deal, if you're going to do anything other than make war on your sin, that is incompatible with loving Jesus. To say otherwise is the devil's logic, the path of self-destruction. Why? Why so hard? Back up one verse to 1.5. See, he started out the book, Scott preached last week, uh, verses 1, 1 through 4. And so that was like the introduction. He's greeting them. He's saying hello. And now he's really beginning the main body of the letter here at verse 5. And it's this solemn declaration. He says in verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him, that is Jesus, and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So this is his prayer. This is what he wants to get out there. He wants to say, before we can talk about your church, before we can talk about your lives, before we can talk about how you treat one another, we gotta start here. We gotta start with your theology. What do you need to believe? What do you need to believe to be true? And he says, here it is. Here's what's true of God. God is light. God is light. All throughout the Old Testament, God is described as light. Light is a metaphor for God's holiness, God's purity, the, the glory of God, the excellence of God, the, the goodness of God, all that makes God, God is captured in the idea that God is light. Light is in contrast to darkness. Darkness is the realm of, of sin, the realm of death, the realm of destruction, the broken and unjust condition of this world after it fell into sin. And what John wants us to know, he says, listen, God is light God's 100% light. He's completely light. And so here's this huge contrast because in this God who is light, there is no darkness at all. He is 0% darkness. He can't have any darkness in him or with him or near him. It has to be far away from him. And that creates for us a huge problem. Does it not? It creates a problem because we, every single one of us, is a sinner, we, every single one of us, sins. We all have darkness in our lives. And you, you say, okay, well, I'm not like these criminals over here, these bad people that are 90%, 95% darkness. I'm like 90% good. I'm 90% light, only 10% darkness. Maybe only 5% darkness if you're really like one of the nice ones. But it says just that 5%, even if it's 1% darkness, that's enough to separate you from God. That's enough to cast you out of God's presence because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So for sinners, those who are in darkness, our sin is a massive central problem. We can't ignore that problem, but we do. 
We ignore our sins. So many of us go from one day to another day without thinking about our sin, without being concerned about this problem. We ignore our sin. And you say, well, that's not me. I know I'm a sinner, okay? I'm a sinner. I'll admit it right now. But listen, there are a number of different ways to ignore sin. We see some of them in this passage. Verse six seems to be the, the sort of the whatever approach to sin, right? So he, he, he says in verse six, I say I have fellowship, but I walk in darkness. So this is kind of the blatant approach that, that I know I sin. I know I'm committing all these sin. I know I'm walking in darkness. I'm not planning on stopping anytime soon, but I'm a Christian and I'm sinning and that's all fine, whatever. It's that approach. But look, look a little further. Look at verse eight. If we say we have no sin... So, so here's a claim. A claim is, I have no sin. Or verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, so this is even stronger, I've never sinned. So, so it's denial, I'm denying the fact that I sinned. Why would somebody do that? Well, it could, be, it could be shame, right? It could be the, if they really knew fear. The idea that, listen, I know what's going on in here. I know there's darkness in here. I know there's, there's secret things that are happening in my life that nobody else knows about. But if they really knew, all these people wouldn't want to be around me. All these people wouldn't accept me. If they really knew what I'm like, I would be an outcast. I, I can't tell anybody what I'm like. I can't tell anybody the truth. I have to hide my sin. I have to pretend like I don't sin. I at least pretend like I don't sin in the ways that I do sin. Or we could have this self-righteous approach, this idea that, that sin is what other people do. Other people sin, bad people sin, criminals sin. Whatever's going on in my life, that's not really sin. That's not really a big deal. Look, I, I, I'm not worried about what's happening. I can control this. Sin is what other people do. All these are ways of saying, I don't sin. Sin is not a problem for me. It's a way of ignoring sin. The passage says the person who's doing that, the person who's ignoring their sin, they're a liar, and they're making God a liar. Are you one of those people? Are you ignoring your sin? Are you living in one of these categories or some other category we could think of? Look at the end of verse 7. <clears throat> the end of verse 7 says, And the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. See, if God is light... In him is no darkness at all, but then here's sin, and sin is characterized by darkness. How do we come to be with God? How do we come to have a relationship to God? Well, cleansing has to happen. Cleansing has to happen. The other day, I was in the Spice Souk, you know, the old market down by the creek, walking around down there, looking at some of the little shops. We had some friends from out of town. We were showing them all the stuff, as you do when people are there from out of town. And um, so Scott, my brother, is there. And so we go, at one point we go into a shop and then I notice, you know, I'm looking at some stuff and then I see Scott's looking at me and he's looking at me with alarm, kind of like, and so I know, I'm like, hey, like what's, what's your problem? And he, he doesn't say anything, he just sort of points to my arm, to my sleeve. And I look at my sleeve and I can see what's happened is clearly at some point prior, I had had the misfortune to walk under a bird, Okay. And this is a bird that has recently consumed, I think, a large meal. And it chose to rid itself of that meal right at the moment I was walking underneath. And so uh, I had become dirty. I was dirty. I was in need of cleansing. 
did me no good to deny it. I could say, hey, I, I have, nothing's on me, but it was there, it was on me, I was dirty. In Old Testament times, they understood that one of the effects of sin was guilt. Guilt was like being dirty. Once you sin, you have this dirtiness on you, this uncleanness on you, whether you acknowledge it or not. In the Old Testament, they knew in the Old Testament that a dirty person, an unclean person, a person who sins can't be in the presence of God who is light. The guilt for that sin needs to be penalized. The wrong needs to be made right. God's wrath towards that sin has to be satisfied. And so God gave to Israel a sacrificial system, right? They sacrificed animals and they had these rules for these different sacrifices. And what the sacrifices did, their goal was to remove uncleanness. Their goal was to satisfy God's wrath. There's this theological word and that word is propitiation. Have you heard that word propitiation? What that means is averting the just wrath of God. God has wrath towards sin. He must punish sin because he is God. But propitiation means instead of the wrath going towards the person who deserves it, the person who committed sin, it's redirected towards another. That's what animal sacrifices symbolize. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There must be blood, there must be a sacrifice. But see, an animal sacrifice can't really stand in my place. An animal sacrifice was just pointing towards a greater reality. John reminds us of that greater reality in chapter two, verse two. Look down. He says, he, that is Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins. See, Jesus is that sacrifice. Jesus stands in our place. Jesus there by dying on the cross, by rising again from the dead, Jesus stood in our place. He accepted the punishment for the guilty ones like us. He is our propitiation. We sang this song this morning, Lamb of God, in my place, your blood poured out, my sin erased. That's what Jesus did. He came as our propitiation. John said later in chapter four, verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Don't ignore your sin. Your sin required that. Your sin required the sacrifice of the son of God in your place so that you could be made clean. That was the cost. That was the penalty for your sin. But see, even in the Old Testament, the, the sacrifices, the, the killing of, of goats or of doves, that was never about this action alone. It wasn't just like this is a penalty for my sin. I, I sin, I kill an animal. I sin, I kill an animal. I sin, I kill an animal. It wasn't that. The idea was that the sacrifice of the animal was symbolic of this contrition that's happening in my heart. The inner acknowledgement of my sin, the inner desire to be clean. So David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, in Psalm 51, he cries out, Have mercy on me, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. See, so he has a desire for cleansing, a desire to be clean. He's not ignoring his sin. He's saying, I, I, I'm dirty. I'm unclean. I have to be made clean. God, do that. Later in the same psalm, he's saying in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. It's the same now for Christians. If you're a Christian, you have a desire to be clean. You have a desire to be clean. People who walk in the dark have sin. People who walk in the light also have sin. The difference between people in the dark and people in the light, between non-Christians and Christians, is not that one sins and the other does not sin. They both sin, we see that in the passage. 
The question is, what's done about that sin? Who is cleansed of that sin? It turns out you can love Jesus and sin. The question is, what do you do with that sin? People who love Jesus do sin, but they are not okay with being dirty. People who love Jesus don't ignore their sin. People who love Jesus long to be clean. And even as I said, there are many ways to ignore sin. There's only one way not to ignore sin. There's only one way not to ignore sin, and that's confession. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, he says it again, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Imagine some low-budget crime drama that you see on TV. Someone, you know, they're looking for a murderer, and somebody comes into the police station and says, it's me. I confess, I did it. You, you can stop the manhunt. It was me, I, I committed the crime. That's a confession, right? Confession is admitting, it's acknowledging what is true. With respect to sin, you're basically saying when you confess, you're saying, yes, you got me. I admit it, I acknowledge that the thing that I did was sin. I acknowledge that I did that thing. It was sin, I did it. Confession doesn't stop with apology. Confession doesn't just express regret. Confession finds the sin, names the sin, and confesses the sin with faith that Christ will forgive that sin. Now, it's part of becoming a Christian, right? You can't become a Christian without at some point in the past coming to that place where you recognize, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus to save me, I need his propitiation, I need his forgiveness, I need his cleansing. If you're a Christian, you were born again when you came to that place for the first time. But the language here is not one of saying, did you confess in the past? The language is, are you confessing in the present? It's saying if we confess our sin, if we, if we are continuing to confess our sin, is the idea. If we are living a life of ongoing confession of sin, he's faithful and just to cleanse. Are we living that kind of life? Are we confessing as a part of our lives? Are we doing what Martin Luther talked about 500 years ago when he said the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance? The opposite of ignoring sin is the ongoing confession of sin. Do you want to know if you're ignoring sin or not? It's easy. Are you confessing sin? Are you confessing sin regularly? Earlier we read Psalm 32. Psalm 32 said, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. There's the two options. I can acknowledge the sin or I can cover the sin. Saying, which are you doing? Which are you doing? Are you acknowledging or are you covering here in verse 9, confessing and cleansing go together, right? Confess the sin, he cleanses you from the sin. Don't confess the sin, no cleansing. And listen, I don't think the point here, it's not saying, oh, well, what if 20 years ago when I was 10 years old, I stepped on my brother's toe and hurt him and I didn't confess that sin at the time. I probably have done things like that at some point in the past that I, I haven't confessed it. I don't think that's the point. It's not saying like every last sin that you didn't even notice you have to do. It's saying, where are you right now? What's your demeanor right now? The point is about today. Today, you need to stop covering your sin. Today, you need to stop hiding your sin. Today, you need to face the facts and confess. Two things that are a part of a real confession. Okay, two things. You've heard of name it and claim it? Okay, not that. Don't name it and claim it. But what you need to do with sin is you need to hoot it and shoot it. Okay, hoot it and shoot it. I made that up. 
Okay, I made that up. Uh, if you've got a better idea, let me know. But, but you, got, you need to hoot it. What I mean is you need to, to yell it out. You need to let it be known. You need to, as publicly as need be, announce, yes, I admit it. I confess it. I did this sin. Certainly you're confessing it to God. Yes, God, I acknowledge it. Certainly to anyone you have sinned against, you're going to them and saying, I confess this sin against you. My sin has affected you. I am wrong. Please forgive me. And then your demeanor is one of being willing for that sin to come out, bringing that sin into the light. That doesn't necessarily mean you're you know, putting it on Facebook for all the world to see, but it does mean you're no longer trying to hide it. You're not trying to keep it behind closed doors. You're willing for others to know about it because it's out there. You're hooting it. You're announcing it. You're confessing it. But I said you need to hoot it, and then you need to shoot it. You need to shoot it. You need to attack your sin. You need to kill your sin. And you say, oh, shooting, that's, that's very unsettling. I don't like that kind of language. Well, I mean it to be unsettling. We need to make war. War involves violence. We need to do violence against our sin. We can't be pacifists when it comes to our sin. We can't just say, oh, oh, I sinned again. Okay, I confess. Oh, I sinned again. Oh, I need to confess. Part of a true confession is saying, this sin is part of my life now, but it must not continue being part of my life. I'm gonna fight this sin. I'm gonna battle this sin. I'm gonna shoot it to get it out of my life. Some sins take a lot of fighting. It's a long battle, but there is a battle there if you're truly confessing. So hoot it and shoot it for whatever it's worth. Christians should be doing this all the time. All the time. Our lives should be lives that are characterized by confession. Don't ignore your sin because look what happens. Look what happens when we confess our sin to Christ. It's incredible, okay? Look at verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? To cleanse us from some sins? To cleanse us from the ones that aren't so very bad? No, to cleanse us from all, all sins, all unrighteousness, everything we've ever done, everything we're afraid to talk about, everything that we are, are battling and struggling with every single day. He's saying it doesn't have to be that way. He can cleanse you from that. He can cleanse you from that too. He can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He wants to do it. He's made the sacrifice to do it. So confess it, bring it into the light and he will cleanse even that. He'll cleanse everything. Don't ignore your sin. In John's gospel, he tells the story of when Jesus healed a man who was blind. Remember that story? It's this incredible miracle where this man was born blind. He'd never had the ability to see and Jesus came to him and Jesus healed him. It's this creative miracle where suddenly there were, were functioning, there was you know, new flesh in the place of dead flesh. There were organs functioning that weren't functioning before, nerve connections to the brain that were not previously there. He, he did this incredible miracle to restore sight to the blind man. And then after that, in John 9, he gets into this argument with the Pharisees about it. You know the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of Jesus' time. Uh, these are people who would have acknowledged in theory all that the Old Testament said. They would have said, oh yeah, sure, there, there's, there's sin and you know, God is light. Yeah, we, we're, we agree with that. We agree that you know, there needs to be propitiation for sin. We agree that confession is good. They would have acknowledged and agreed with all of those things. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you'd agree with all of those things too. But see, here's the problem with the Pharisees. They had this worldview where basically it boiled down to two things. There was good people and there was bad people. Good people are the people like them. The people that come to the synagogue, the people that read the Torah, the people that follow the right rules about Sabbaths and sacrifices and tithing and those kind of, those are the good people. 
And there's all these other people, these Gentiles, these sinners, these people who have problems like they're poor or they're, they're blind or they're crippled. Those are the people with issues. God must be punishing them. They're bad people. Thank goodness that we're the good people. That's how the Pharisees thought. And so Jesus had this argument with them, trying to expose to them the error of that way of thinking. At the, at the climax, some Pharisees say to Jesus, they say, wait a second, they're, they're starting to get it. They say, are you saying that we are blind? And Jesus replies in John 9, 41, he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Which are you today? Which are you? Are you the one that says, I'm blind? Or are you the one that says, I see? Are you the one that says, I am, I am blind. I don't know where I'm going. I need help. I need help. I need someone to make me see. I need, I need someone to take away my guilt, to take away my, my, my sin. I need a propitiation for this sin. I confess that. Are you that blind person who's crying out for help? Or are you the person who says, no, I'm good. I see. I see. I'm good. I, I do all the stuff. I come to church. I do, I do all the things. I see, I'm fine. You go, you know, someone else can get the blind cure because I'm all right. Which one are you? See, that person who says we see, that person who says I'm good, what they're doing is they're, they're looking at God's offer of forgiveness. They're looking at, uh, at the propitiation that Jesus made for their sin and they're saying, oh, no thanks. I don't need that. Appreciate the offer. I'm gonna be all right. But see, they're not gonna be all right. They'll, their guilt remains, their sin remains. The road to forgiveness goes through confession. Know that. Think on that. Are you ignoring your sin? That's the first question. And there's a second question that this text asks. The first is, are you ignoring your sin? The second question that I want you to be asking your hearts is, are you ignoring your works? Are you ignoring your works? Because as we come into chapter two, the tone starts to change a little bit. Yeah, he, he becomes more affectionate. He says, my little children... He talks to them. Later on, he says, beloved. He, he starts using the word I instead of we. It's like this very grandfatherly kind of tone. And it's almost like, okay, he's, he's had to say some hard things to them. He's had to be pretty strict with them, but he wants to then bring into that conversation. But listen, there is hope. There is hope. Remember that Jesus is our advocate, he says. He's our representative. Jesus is our propitiation. We can, we can hope in that, he's saying. Then look at verse three. He says, by this... We know, by this we know that we have come to know him. This word know is a major emphasis of 1 John. It comes up 25 times in the book of John. This is the first time. There's some other places. For example, he says in 319, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. In 324, he says, by this we know that he abides in us. 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. 5.13, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. John doesn't want you to be in the dark. He doesn't want you to be in confusion. He says you can know, you can know now if you have eternal life or not. You can have assurance, you can have hope, you can have it now. And he says here's the secret, the secret, the, the, the ticket, the, the way to assurance, he says, Look at your works. Look at your works. Look at your good deeds or lack thereof. Look at your life that you are living, your walk that you are walking. Which path are you going down? He says, look at that, and that's gonna tell you. That's gonna tell you a story. It's gonna tell you about where you stand with relation to God. He says, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
See, we can be afraid of that kind of language in the church. We say, oh, commandments, that sounds like, that sounds like rules, that sounds like legalism. We don't want anybody to accuse us of that. We're afraid of that kind of accusation and that fear makes us avoid talking about works, but the Bible is not afraid of works. The Bible's not afraid of talking about works. Jesus was not afraid of talking about works. He said things like, this is Jesus, John 8, 31. He says, if you abide in my word, if you obey me, truly you are my disciples. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying, works matter. Works matter. What you do in your life, it matters. If you notice in our passage, the bad guy, the hypocrite, the false Christian, he talks a lot. He's saying a lot of things. He's saying, I have fellowship with him. He's saying, I know him. He's saying, I abide in him. Notice it always talks about what he says. But see, the true Christian is characterized by what's he actually doing? What is he actually doing in response to God? So we need to look at works. Now, let's be clear. Are you saved by doing enough good works? Is this passage saying that, okay, like just do less of the bad stuff, do more of the good stuff, and then you're gonna be okay with God? Is it saying that? No, no, okay, we, we, we've already seen this. We've seen that, that we, we, we can't do enough good works. We need Christ's intervention. We need him to be the propitiation. We need him to forgive us. That's how you become a Christian. So works are not the basis for your salvation. You're not saved by works, but works are the basis for your assurance, okay? Works are not the basis for your salvation. Works are the basis for your assurance. Look at verse three. How do we know that we come to know him if we keep his commandments? Verse four, what if you say you know him but you don't keep his commandments? He says, you're a liar, you should not have assurance. The person who obeys should have assurance. The person who does not obey should not have assurance. Verse five, but what if I keep his word? Okay, have assurance, God's love is completed in you. See, assurance is based on your works. Your works are telling a story. Either way, whatever your works are, you are learning from them. They are telling you a story. Look in your rearview mirror right now. All right, do it now. Look back. Look back at the last 24 hours. Look back at the last week. Look back at the last month. Look back at the last year. Think about what have you actually done? What is going on in your life? What are the things that have happened? How have you spent the hours? How have you spent your time? How have you spent your free time? What have you been like at work? What have you been like at home? What kinds of things have you uh, spoken about? What kinds of conversations do you have? What kind of relationships do you have? What kind of thoughts do you have? All of those things are, are telling a story. What story are they telling? Are you reading that story that they're telling you? See, a lot of times we want to ignore our works. We want to, we want to say, hey, I'm just living my life. I'm looking forward. I'm not looking, I'm not looking back there. I'm, not looking, I'm just moving forward. But look back. What do you see when you look back? What kind of story is being told? Look at verse six. He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Isn't that beautiful? It's this picture of discipleship. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the master saying, do you abide in him? Are you his child? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? If he's your master, he's your Lord, and you're his follower, you know what you should do? You should follow him. You should follow him. You should follow his teaching. You should follow his life. You should be able to look back at your history and see, I see a direction towards following Jesus. 
I don't see perfection. That's not expected. But I see someone who is striving to know Jesus. I see someone who is striving to be like Jesus. I see someone who's striving to know and obey Jesus. That's the direction that you're looking for, the direction of a disciple. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Walking in Jesus' way means not walking in darkness. It means the story of your life is one of walking in the light as he is in the light. So when you look back at your works, you're looking for that story, the story of a follower of Jesus, of a direction towards Jesus, of seeing how being a follower of Jesus has shaped you, has shaped your words, has shaped your time, has shaped your priorities, has shaped the things you do. Don't assume today that because you're in church, you are walking after Jesus, that you are a follower of Jesus. Check the evidence. Let's say I told you this morning, I said, hey, guess what, everybody? I have an announcement. I am a disciple of Usain Bolt, the fastest man in the world. He's really fast. He can run 100 meters in like five seconds. And I am his follower. I'm his disciple. So you could say, okay, let's look at your works, Eric. Let's look at what kind of story are they telling us. And we can say, okay, let's, let's line it up here. So Usain Bolt gets up at four o'clock in the morning to work out. Eric gets up at eight o'clock in the morning to eat breakfast. Huh. Okay, Usain Bolt, uh, he, he runs sprints for eight hours a day. Eric plays video games for eight hours a day. Usain Bolt says, never eat cheeseburgers, they're bad for you. Eric does eat cheeseburgers. See, what would you say? You would say, so if I'm telling you I'm a follower of Usain Bolt, you would say, I think the evidence for that is lacking. I don't see that story being told by your works. What I see in your works, Eric, is someone who is not following Usain Bolt. And see, we can... Your works are telling a story about Christ. Uh, people say, uh, I know this guy. I know this guy, George. George is angry. He's unkind to everybody. He never comes to church. He mistreats his wife. He, he made a profession of faith as a child. Could George be saved? Is George a Christian? And listen, you know what the answer is? The answer is, I don't, I don't know what's in George's heart. I can't see anything about George's heart. What happened in his, whether what happened in his childhood was real or not, I don't know. But what I can say with certainty right now is that George, looking back in that rearview mirror, looking back at that history, at that story, George has zero basis for assurance of salvation. George should not know that he is a Christian because his story is the story of a man who's walking in darkness. Don't ignore your works, George. They tell a story of one who should fear for his soul. Another friend, let, let's, let's call her uh, Christine, she's plagued by doubt. She worries if she's chosen by God. She worries if God can really forgive her. She doesn't feel very godly. She remembers these past sins. She's, she's plagued by the memory. But I say to her, listen, Christine, your works tell a story. I've seen you serving in the church for many years. I've seen you being teachable. I've seen humility. I've seen faithful, unsung service. I've seen genuine, caring relationships with other people. I don't see perfection, no, but I see the direction of one who's striving after Jesus. Christine, your works tell a story. Your works tell a story of following Jesus. Have hope, Christine. Have assurance, because your works are telling the story of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you ignoring your works? Have you been just going through life one day at a time, not even thinking about what's behind you? Look behind you. Don't ignore those works. 
The path of least resistance is the path to hell. Don't take that path. We want to be in the light, right? We want to know that we have eternal life. We want to experience the joy and the fellowship and the hope that goes along with that. And John's saying we can have that assurance. So ask these questions. Are you ignoring your sin? Are you ignoring your works? And as he talks about works, he starts talking about commandments. He starts talking about commandments, and as he comes into verse 7, he starts talking about a new commandment, this kind of last section. He's talking about a new commandment. This, of course, came from Jesus, right? Jesus said in the Last Supper, in John 13, he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. What's the commandment? That you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So here in, in kind of 2, 7 and following, John's applying this new commandment. He's saying, okay, as you're thinking through life and death, light and darkness, assurance and lack of assurance, he's saying, think about the new commandment. And so y'all think about that this morning. If everything else I've said is a little bit, um, you know, if you're confused at this point and you say, okay, well, I don't know how to think about my life, just focus on this one thing. Focus on this last question. The last question is, are you ignoring your family? Not the people who live in your house per se, your children, your parents, your siblings, but this family, the family here, us, the people sitting around you right now. Are you ignoring that family? Because what he says is, what he says here as he talks about the new commandment, look at verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. See, we can make it really that simple. What is your heart towards the other people who know Jesus? Is your heart one of love for them? Do you love for them? Do you care about them? Do you desire to serve them? Are you willing to sacrifice yourself for the sake of the people in this room? Do you, are you excited to be with them? Are you excited to help them? Are you excited to spend time with them? When you hear someone say, when you hear Scott announcing this morning that there's financial needs in the church, or you hear it being said that there are needs in children's ministry or in setup ministry, does your heart say, I want to help with that if I can? Not because I love doing setup, but because I love these people. Do you love, do you love these people? Do you love your family? You say, well, eh, you know, love, eh, but like I don't hate them. I don't hate the church. I'm, you know, I'm neutral toward the church. Well, it seems like it's saying here, like, there's, there's not a neutrality. Hate, as defined in this, it doesn't seem like hate here is like, I hate them, I'm gonna go, you know, like cut off everybody's head. No, it's not that kind of hate. It seems to be the kind of hate that is the lack of love. The kind of hate that's marked by indifference. The kind of hate that says, I don't care what's going on in your life. Like, you're suffering, I hope, I hope that works out for you. I hope, I hope somebody takes care of that. Like, I, you know, I got a life, you people are not that important to me. I'm just here for a little while. What he's saying is, that's the attitude of someone who doesn't know Christ because a genuine believer, someone who's experienced the gift of salvation, someone who's experienced cleansing and forgiveness and hope in Christ says, I love the other people that have experienced this with me. I love my brothers and sisters. They're from different cultures. They're of different ages, but I love them because we are saved together. We're God's family together. So are you ignoring your family? Look to that and see what that part of your life is telling you. We'll see more of that as we go through 1 John. Look at verse 8. He says, he's writing the new commandment, and look at the reason. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. 
John views us, John and other New Testament writers too, he says, we seem to be standing at this intersection of two ages. There's an, an old age, a time of darkness, a time of death, a time of this world. And he says that age, and look at verse 17, he says the world's passing away. The old age, the age of the world, the age of Satan, that age is passing away. But he says this new age has come. A new age, a new day has come with Jesus. The light is shining. He says, the true light is already shining. He says, which age do you want to live in? Would you want to belong to this world? Do you want to belong to death? Or do you want to belong to the kingdom of Christ? Do you want to live now as a citizen of that kingdom? That's the invitation that he's giving to us. There's a scam that's going around. You know, they, they, do these con- they do big concerts in town. I think J-Lo was here over the weekend. I don't know if he went into that. But see, so you know, a big concert comes, and so you say, oh man, I really want to go see J-Lo, so, oh no, it's sold out, what can I do? Well, I can get on Do Bizzle, and on Do Bizzle, I can, I can, oh, someone's selling a ticket, a thousand dirhams each, that's a good deal, so I'm going to buy my ticket for J-Lo, and I meet the guy in the parking lot, and I give him the cash, and I get the printout with the barcode on it, and I go up to the door of the concert, and I'm all excited, and I got my J-Lo t-shirt on, and I'm ready to go in there, and he scans my, my little ticket with the barcode, and... Uh oh, red light. The ticket doesn't work. This ticket's already been used because it's a scam. What the guy did is he bought one ticket and he sold it 100 times. Not all of those tickets can get in. So here I am, I've got my bad ticket. I'm out of 1,000 dirhams. I'm out all this time and money and effort. And here I am, you hear the concert starting, and here I am outside. I'm so close, I can hear it, I can taste it, but I don't get to go in. I've got a fake ticket. See, don't be that person. Don't be that person that has a fake ticket. Don't be the person who doesn't get to go in. Don't be you, Darvish, who comes so close to his goal and lets it slip away. Don't be that. Ask the questions. Are you ignoring your brothers and sisters? Or do you love? Are you ignoring your works? Or are you striving to walk like Christ? Are you ignoring your sin? Or are you confessing and repenting? I write these things to you, he says in 2.1. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Go out of here with the resolve to fight against that sin. Sin is not a neutral thing. Sin is a horrible thing. Sin blinds our eyes. Sin changes our theology. Sin makes us lost. It breaks our fellowship. It robs our assurance. It leaves us wandering, lost, outside, alone. Make war on your sin. Keep fighting it. Keep confessing it. Keep killing it. Even today, if the Lord is bringing conviction to your heart, even today, say, today is the day that I engage this battle. Today is the day that this fight begins in earnest. Today is the day that I'm gonna start bringing this into the light. I'm gonna live this life of confessing. I'm gonna live this life of following Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you're not there yet, let today be the day you start that. The reward is fellowship, joy, and assurance now, and life eternal beyond. So ask yourself the hard questions. Think on these things. Today is the day for you to come out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me pray. Father, may we be deeply convicted about our sin. May we bring our sin before you in confession. May we know the grace of forgiveness. May we know the grace of cleansing. May every person in this room, Father, May we see clearly where we stand with you. 
May we know whether we ought to be people who can be encouraged that our sin is paid for, that we have assurance of eternal life, or may we see with clarity that we need that help, that we are blind, that we need that healing, we need that cleansing, we need that forgiveness. Father, make that so clear to the people in this room right now and give us the resolve to act upon what we see right now, to respond to your word as we see in this text. Be glorified in how we live and how we respond, we pray in Christ's name, amen.